Wednesday's Nine Productions and the German Resistance Memorial Foundation present an excursion through the center of Berlin. In December of 1942, Hitler installs meat hooks in the execution shed in Plötzensee. He develops this form of a particularly torturous hanging specifically for Arvitana, Harro Schulzeboisen, and their circle of friends. The executions take place two days before Christmas. Painful minutes pass until they die. During the following months, 43 women and men take the same path toward their deaths. 50 more from their circle of friends are taken to prisons and concentration camps. Here, in this park, they meet for walks on the winding paths. They sit on the grass and talk without fear of being overheard. Avid is my relative. In 1930, he and his wife Mildred arrive in Berlin. In the city, life is pulsating. Cafes and restaurants are crowded at Potsdamer Platz, but the reverberations of the world economic crisis are in the air. Arvid's wife, Mildred, writes to her mother. It's shocking that 96% of the German people possess no property and live from hand to mouth. Radical parties have an increased following. They promise to return Germany to its former grandeur. Violent conflicts erupt in the streets between left and right-wing extremists causing death and injury. Mildred writes to her mother. Many Germans feel the desperation of their situation and think it would be a good idea to have a more absolute government again. The group calls itself National Socialist, although it has nothing to do with socialism, and the name itself is a lie. It thinks itself highly moral, and like the Ku Klux Klan, makes a campaign of hatred against the Jews. Soon, Mildred feels the effects. The people with who we live are Nazis. Direct our letters to the University of Berlin, English seminar. We are about to move quietly. Harrow moves to Berlin. He becomes a friend and fellow fighter of my great-grandmother. He studies law. Harrow writes to his father. Dear Papa, at the top of this giant phenomenon is a funny, petty bourgeois man. Surely Hitler will be strange as the future Reich's president, but it'll be a pathetic episode in German history. Harrow becomes the editor of a newspaper critical of the right wing. He writes to his parents. I assume Hitler will come to power this spring. This right-wing government will either remain harmless, finishing itself off by becoming mediocre, or it will grow stronger and turn into a dictatorship. The Reichstag, seat of the government, burns. Democratic rights are abolished. The man Harrow calls a funny, petty bourgeois man becomes chancellor on January 30th, 1933. All political adversaries are persecuted. Haro writes to his parents. Dear parents, just spent 24 hours in prison. 
Without any explanation, I was squeezed into a dark, overheated basement with 55 people. Terrible bullying. They just released me. During those hours, I met wonderful people. Therefore, now more than ever. Harrow's newspaper is declared illegal. A Nazi troop in SA uniforms storms his office, detaining him and a Jewish colleague. In the basement of a bowling alley, they are forced to pass through lines of men who whip them. Harrow's colleague dies in front of his eyes. Now, Harrow has enough evidence that the Nazis can murder without being punished. He decides to fight them from within and becomes a military observer. His father helps him obtain a position in the Air Force Ministry. Harrow says to a friend, I learn and wait, and I'll be there when the time comes. Harrow writes to his parents, Yesterday there was major anti-Semitic violence. You probably read about it in the paper. More and more Americans living in Germany leave the country. To those who stay, like Arvid's wife Mildred, the American embassy becomes very important. During receptions, she meets compatriots willing to help Jewish friends emigrate to the U.S. She gets involved with the American Women's Club. As she and Arvid start developing small circles of anti-Nazi sympathizers, the club helps to camouflage her life-threatening activities. The situation for the Jews worsens. The Nuremberg laws strip them of their citizenship. Marriages to Jews are forbidden. Attacks on Jews aren't prosecuted. They become fair game. Harrow meets Libertas, a Nazi sympathizer. She falls in love with him and begins to share his anti-Nazi views. They get married. A trip to Switzerland enables Harrow to ride to a friend in France without being censored. It's still impossible to organize, but we have meetings in small circles. This way I connect to other active people. Arvid and Harrow independently gather circles of Nazi adversaries. They're people from all walks of society. Arvid takes a position in the economics ministry. Here, he gathers evidence that Hitler is preparing an expansive war. Through a friend, Harrow hears about Arvid Harnack. He wants to meet him. They get together in the summer of 1935. To Arvid, Harrow's open way of speaking critically about the Nazis appears careless. He refuses further contact with him. In Spain, the civil war rages. Harrow hears that Hitler is bombing a civilian population at Franco's request. Without any prior warning, German and Italian planes destroy the Basque city of Guernica. For Hitler, this is a welcome chance to rehearse war. Despite the imminent danger, 
Hera wants to inform other European powers. He gathers the facts, numbers of soldiers, airplanes, weapons, and ammunition. A friend who passes on the information is detained. Harrow falls under suspicion. His apartment is searched. Panic spreads within his circle, but nobody betrays him. He writes to his parents. I really have so much work during these weeks that I don't have time, energy, or quiet to write. A friend describes a meeting at Harrow's. It was the first illegal gathering. It was 1937. If you're against it, shouldn't you do something about it? Asked a man named Kurt. Harrow looked at me attentively, as if I were his son, taking an exam at school. We discussed whether it made sense to do anything at all. It was almost hopeless. The risk was inhuman. Four young men sat around a table with cups of tea. In the end, we all shook hands. They were men of courage, and they gave me courage. Avid doesn't believe in a people's rebellion. He hopes America will oppose Germany once they find out about Hitler's war plans. At the American Women's Club, Mildred meets the wife of an embassy employee. The women organize a covert meeting of their husbands in this park. The embassy employee listens to Arvid. In order to get his government to act, he needs specific evidence. The park is not the right place for the exchange of secret documents. Frequent meetings could pose a danger for Arvid. The embassy employee is outraged that his son has to memorize the Nazis' racial laws at his German school. Mildred gives the boy private lessons at her apartment. She puts the secret documents that Arvid smuggles from the economics ministry into the boy's book bag. He takes them to his father at the American embassy, which is right at the end of this path. The American Embassy is directly behind us. Today, the Embassy is located in the same place as the original building, which was destroyed during the war. From here, the information the little boy transported in his book bag is delivered to Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau and President Roosevelt. Unfortunately, the American government doesn't want to jeopardize its economic relations with Germany and reacts reluctantly. At this time, the violence against Jewish citizens increases. During the night of broken glass, it manifests itself openly. Shops are destroyed. Synagogues are set on fire. The resistors begin organizing immigrations because it has become impossible for Jews to leave Germany legally. Friends of Mildred's forge passports. Risking her life, she takes them to Paris and London. There, she has visas stamped on them. Germany is forbidden to have weapons of war after World War I. Yet Hitler secretly rearms. 
It helps create jobs. In the beginning, there are rumors. Somebody sees heavy trucks passing on a country road at night. Hardly anybody dares to openly express suspicion. The recent world war has resulted in too many dead and wounded. Yet, eventually, nobody can ignore the fact that Hitler is preparing for a new war. Platoons of heavy war machinery are seen in the streets. Mildred writes to her mother. Arvid and I are looking for other rooms, hoping to find some as nice as these again. They are too noisy. Heavy trucks are continually going through to the barracks and places of detention not far from here. At the end of August 1939, Harrow says to a friend, Tomorrow night we will attack Poland. It will be the greatest war in the history of mankind, but Hitler won't survive it. On the morning of September 1st, a war starts that will kill 60 million people. The American embassy urges its citizens to leave Germany. Arvid buys an open ticket to the States for Mildred. She refuses to leave. She writes to her family. Better not write, but don't forget me. Now, as circumstances turn desperate, Arvid decides to work with Harrow. They meet for a second time and plan to warn foreign powers. Arvid knows an employee at the Soviet embassy. Harrow investigates the exact date of the planned attack on the Soviet Union. The embassy sends it to Stalin. He rejects the warning with the following words. To Comrade Merkulov, you can send your source from the German Air Force staff to his whore mother. This is not a source, but a disinformer. In the early morning of June 22, 1941, 153 German divisions crossed the border into the Soviet Union. It is the largest military offensive in the history of the world. The American president declares that the U.S. will join the fight with the Soviet Union, offering any possible help. The Soviet embassy is surrounded by SS officers. An employee manages to leave the building with a suitcase. He walks into the subway. A few stations away, he meets a friend of Arvid's and hands her the suitcase. She awaits him nervously. She knows that the suitcase contains a radio transmitter. The Soviets plan to use it to communicate with the Berlin resistors. After the war, Arvid's friend describes her meeting with the Soviet embassy employee. I saw our friend approaching the subway station as I came up the stairs. Our meeting didn't feel at all like the feared Secret Service atmosphere. He kept the inconspicuous hard-fibre suitcase in his hand. It wasn't particularly elegant. So I asked him directly, what happens with the suitcase? It looks pretty harmless, right? The best is if you put it with your air defence luggage so you can grab it as soon as the air raid sirens go off. I checked the weight. It wasn't light. 
Back home I cried. I didn't want to cry. I didn't want to be emotional. Then I regained my composure. As agreed, I put the suitcase with my air defence luggage next to my bed. I knew its importance. I'd guard it so nothing would happen to the radio transmitter. Unfortunately, they would find out later that the radio transmitter didn't work. As a result, the Soviets try to contact the Berlin resistors and end up exposing them by naming them and providing their home addresses. The Nazis intercept their message, although they don't manage to decode it right away. In 1941, Hitler declares war on the U.S. With heavy hearts, Arvid and Mildred have to say goodbye to the family of the embassy employee. They accompany them to the train station. Arvid takes Mildred's ticket along. It's her last chance to leave Germany. But she stays. Without any idea that the Gestapo's net is constricting around them, the group continues to work feverishly. They hide persecuted people. With friends, Harold writes a leaflet. In every country, every day, hundreds, often thousands of people are being shot or hanged arbitrarily and under martial law. The most horrific tortures and atrocities are being perpetrated on civilians and prisoners in the name of the German Reich. Never in the course of history has a man been hated as much as Adolf Hitler. The hate of tormented mankind is a burden on the entire German people. The German people know they will one day have to answer to history, to themselves, and to the world. Let those who are too weak to bear the truth continue to accept the lies. Every day that prolongs the war only brings unspeakable suffering and sacrifice. Every new day that the war goes on only increases the bill we will all have to pay in the end. With great difficulty, a few hundred of these are typed, using carbon paper to make copies. It is difficult to obtain envelopes. It is equally difficult to send multiple letters from the same mailbox. It could raise suspicion at the post office. The friends collect sheets of papers and envelopes. They buy stamps from different post offices. The letters are deposited in mailboxes all over town, never more than a few at a time. The leaflets are sent to approximately 200 influential people, clergymen, judges, professors, diplomats, and also to high-ranking Nazis. The goal is to make the latter paranoid, and it works. Internal Gestapo communications show that the leaflet is circulated all over the country. Most of the leaflets are handed over to the Gestapo by the recipients. The officers are forced to read its final sentence which causes them great anxiety. Broadcast this letter to the world as much as you can. Pass it on to friends and workmates. You are not alone. Start fighting on your own initiative, and then in groups. Germany will be ours tomorrow. Subsequently, the Gestapo files provide a long list of recipients, post offices, and supply companies, through which they tried to trace the origin of the paper and envelopes. Because of the Red Orchestra's high level of secrecy, the Gestapo's intense investigation during the early summer of 1942 leads nowhere. 
On May 17th and 18th, 1942, Harrow and his friends take one of their riskiest actions. In Berlin, a propaganda exhibition named The Soviet Paradise is mounted. Its purpose is to justify the war portraying the Russians as racially inferior people who live in squalor. Harrow's friends use the timing of the exhibition to paste stickers in Berlin. They read, The Nazi Paradise. War. Hunger. Lies. Gestapo. How much longer? About 20 people participate in this action. To minimize the risk, they come up with a ruse. A man and a woman pose as lovers. They hug, leaning against an advertising display. Discreetly, one of them pastes the tiny sticker on the display behind the back of the other. Sometimes, Haro lingers nearby in his Air Force uniform, providing cover so the situation appears totally harmless. Like the leafletting, this action remains undiscovered. The German army's victories are followed by the murder of civilians. SS and police are ordered to carry them out. More than 33,000 people, mostly women, children and elderly people, are killed in a short period of time. Right here, the Ministry of Propaganda bordered on Wilhelm Street. Hera's wife, Libertas, works here as a film critic. She discovers images of atrocities and shows them to her friends. They are shaken by the evidence that appears on photos and film footage. They want to shake up the population. In the beginning of 1942, Arvid's circle of friends write the leaflet to a police officer. It is a letter to a fictional officer who, after his return from the Eastern Front, suffers a nervous breakdown. He is traumatized by his experiences. I'll read an excerpt. The victims had to kneel down in rows. He walked along behind them, shooting his bullets into the backs of their heads at close range. He told me he had to kill a young woman, a farmer's wife with her three children. The woman held a baby in her arms. It was bitterly cold. Pointlessly, she tried to warm the crying child with threadbare rags for the last two minutes of its life. With a helpless gesture of apology, she motioned that she had nothing more. Everything else had been stolen. To the right of the woman knelt her six-year-old son. To her left, a little girl of about two years of age, who in the last minute ran back to get her doll before she had to kneel down. Oh well, the doll too. As I mentioned, it was a ridiculous, wretched rag doll. The little girl, when she had knelt down herself in a clumsy, childish way, put the doll into a kneeing position next to her in the snow as well, fussing like children do. And then suddenly, the six-year-old boy had jumped up towards the shooter. According to his story, a fierce struggle erupted between the attacked officer and the child. Of course, it only lasted a few seconds. The bite in the finger that caused his finger to become stiff were the result of that struggle. Two shots were necessary because the first went off target, going into one of the boy's eyes, which turned into a bloody mess. 
In contrast, the little girl remained totally quiet and without a murmur fell to the ground next to her doll. Tell me, Captain, what is the difference between murderers who kill out of degenerative behavior, out of duty, or out of cowardice? During a battle in August 1942, the German troops suffered their first major loss. The resistors feel optimistic. They hope that the Nazi Empire will come to an end by 1943. Yet Arvid is nervous. When his brother visits, they search his apartment for hidden microphones. Look how quickly the weather can change. This is the Ministry of Finances. It is the only Nazi government building that survived the war unharmed. This used to be the Reich's Air Force Ministry. Up until the summer of 1942, Haro uses his employment there to obtain secret information about Nazi war preparations. But unfortunately, it is too late. The Nazis have decoded the Soviet message. In it, they find the addresses of Haro Schulze Boysen and Arvid Harnack, as well as other information. On August 31st, 1942, Haro's wife Libertas receives a call that her husband is on an unexpected business trip. A terrible suspicion creeps over her. Panicking, she runs to see friends to warn them. Then she flees to southern Germany. But there's no way out. Nine days after Haro's detention, she is arrested on a train. On that Monday, shortly before Libertas hears about the supposed business trip, Haro is detained in his office, right here at the Air Force Ministry. Arvid and Mildred are arrested at their vacation spot in eastern Prussia. During the following days, more than a hundred women and men are detained and interrogated. Most of them are taken to the Gestapo headquarters at 8 Prince Albrecht Street. The prisoners are people from all levels of society, cleaning ladies, aristocrats, artists, and office workers who fought together. Jews and Catholics belong to the resistance group as well as conservatives and communists. The oldest of those detained is 86 years old, the youngest, 16. Over 40% are women. Hitler is shocked by the size and especially the diversity of the circles of friends around Harrow and Arvid. It shows that in every level of society there are people who resist him. To calm him, the Gestapo defines the group as a Soviet spy network and calls it the Red Orchestra. A person hitting Morris keys is a pianist. A group of pianists forms an orchestra. Red means communism. Over many decades, the image with which the Gestapo vilifies these people is spread through history books in both German states. In West Germany, the surviving resistors and the families of the executed are publicly defamed as traitors to their country all the way into the 1990s. In East Germany, they are depicted equally wrong, as led by the Soviets. In reality, the group didn't have a name or a common ideology. 
Their goal was to get rid of the Nazis, and nothing else. It takes 67 years until these so-called traitors to their country are officially vindicated in 2009 by the Federal Republic of Germany. On the plaza in front of you was a Gestapo headquarters. It was bombed to pieces during the war. Underneath the plaza were the Gestapo basements. Here, the resistors were locked up, photographed, interrogated, and tortured. After weeks of interrogation and torture, Harl writes a goodbye letter on December 22nd. Dear parents, the moment has come. In a few hours, I will leave this world. I am completely calm and ask you to also take this peacefully. Today, in the whole world, we are dealing with such important things that one extinguished life doesn't mean a lot. Whatever happened, what I did, I don't want to write about it anymore. Everything I did was done from my head, my heart, and my conviction. And in this context, you, as my parents, have to assume the best. That I must ask you. This death befits me. On December 22, 1942, Arvid is hung as well. His wife Mildred is guillotined in the same room on February 16, 1943. On the same day as Arvid, the Nazis also kill Haro's wife Libertas, John Graudenz, Kurt and Elizabeth Schumacher, Rudolf von Schilia, Ilse Stöbe, Kurt Schulze, and Hans Kopi. Hans Kopi's wife Hilda is pregnant. Prior to her execution on August 5, 1943, she gives birth to her son in prison. She writes to her mother. Unfortunately, I can't tell you anything about Hans. His last letter to me is dated December 9th, a day after he was here and saw our son. Since then, I've heard nothing at all from him. You can imagine that I don't have good days ahead of me, but I'm lucky to have my little Hans with me. In his interest, I have to control myself very much. But how long will it take until I don't have little Hans anymore, either? The court proceedings against the other members of the group are rushed along. They are a farce. The dancer, Oda Schuttmiller, writes a secret message to a friend from her cell. You probably know the result already. All received death sentences, except for Martha, who got away with four years of prison. I was the last in line, and the men already seemed a bit exhausted. The president was very acceptable. The admiral with the perm was there, too, but seriously fatigued as well. Yet, at least he managed to keep his eyes open and sit up straight, though with great effort. Two other men were quite indifferent, even when they gave occasional signs of attention. A man with a head like a billiard ball with a suspiciously colored nose was fast asleep. I didn't dare to look in his direction, because it was too funny how his head kept almost hitting the table's surface. Marie Teville's lawyer, Dr. Heinz Bergmann, managed to add incriminating evidence that even the prosecution hadn't mentioned. None of us turned soft. 
In a way, we were quite happy that we were together and able to talk with one another. Dear one, I have told all this to you in such detail because I assume it is interesting to you and perhaps later to others too. That's why I ask you if you might take the risk and keep this report. Marie Terville writes to her relatives. I have absolutely no fear of my death, and less so of divine justice, because we, at least, don't have to worry about that. This tour was recorded at the original locations in Berlin. The voices you heard are from persons who had family members who were part of the resistance or suffered persecution.